Sutomo Miyazaki Episode 2. Welcome listeners to the second part of the investigative episode. This episode has adult themes present, discussing child abuse, rape, murder, and death. This is absolutely not for little ears, so please get this episode, or listen to another one of my narrated-based episodes, or even an old-timey radio episode, to pass the time. Before we begin, respectfully the four children that were wrongfully taken from this world. Marie Kono, Masami Yoshizawa, Erika Namba, and Ayako Nomoto. Today we're continuing the research and analysis of Sutomu Miyazaki, a Japanese serial killer titled The Otaku Killer by the Japanese media, and a creature of a man. Let's go through a recap. Four murdered children of which he ate parts of their body whilst they were decomposing, drank their blood from the wounds he inflicted, and performed necrophilic acts on their bodies. Sutomu was the son of an incestuous relationship between his father and one of his older sisters. He was born premature, which as a result led to a major deformity in his wrists, in which no wrist joint formed, making his hands unable to tilt up above the wrist joint. This deformity would lead to verbal and mental abuse from his family and his peers during the most formative part of his childhood and into adult life. Key areas of his psyche were impacted profoundly where social, emotional, and reasoning faculties were severely stunted and would lead to aggressive and perverted behaviors. We also know that during his adult years, he retreated into otaku culture, which is equivalent to geek or nerd culture in Japan. The otaku culture also represents to some extent, back in 1988 Japan, a person who is an outcast, a loner, a person with no to little social standing, and frowned upon within society, often perceived as creepy, strange, or unsociable. This has changed significantly over time, and we'll touch on this later. In his early years, Satomi was alone for countless of hours, no human interaction at all, left to obsess and retreat into his otaku space and his own world. A world of horror, anime, manga, slasher flicks, and more. But that kind of media in of itself is not the trigger for this bullet. But early signs of perversion began from within, and showed at age 21 when Sotomu delved deeper into child pornography, an obsessive interest that catered to his sexual fantasies. Despite this obsession, he never acted on any of his urges. He either repressed them or didn't feel the need to exercise those urges. But there was a trigger point that ignited the fuse to carrying out those murders. That trigger can be traced back to the death of his grandfather, the only person that showed any kind of empathy or love, when that life was snuffed out. So was Sotomu's humanity. With the first break from reality, when he accounts consuming his grandfather's ashes and watching his sisters take showers, Responding aggressively when confronted on either, his pathway moved from fantasy to reality, as he began taking actions on his desires. Four murders took place as a result of this trigger between August 1988 to June 1989. And now, we're going to discuss his arrest, the trial, his alter ego, Japanese otaku culture, hoarding of VHS otaku media, and ultimately, his sentence. 
June 23rd, 1988, is when we see Sotomu pushing his boundaries even further, specifically his sexual fantasies. Sotomu was looking for another child in the area, and happened upon a park in Hachiyoji, a city in the western part of Tokyo, and found two sisters playing outside in the open area, near a park. At this point, Sotomu was getting reckless, because usually he only targeted and manipulated one child at a time. In this encounter, he would split his attention between the two, with the goal to separate them. Of the two sisters, he was able to convince the younger sister to join him in his car, but was unable to convince the older sister who decided to go home. With the younger sister in his car, he began taking nude pictures of her and going as far as to undress himself completely, whilst taking pictures of the nude child. Bear in mind, this is a public space, but mind you, it could have been a quiet area. One article states that he became physically aggressive, trying to insert the camera's zoom lens into the genitalia of the child. But it was at this moment, where Sutomu was naked alongside the child, that the older sister came back with her father, where Sutomu was attacked, beaten, but unable to be restrained. Running from the area naked, Sutomu was looking to find his car as a means to get away. The father, at this point, had already contacted the police, and seeing as the police were already on high alert from the previous months regarding children going missing, they saw this as an opportunity to close in on Sutomu, ambushing him at his car and arresting him before he was able to escape, stopping Sutomu in his tracks for good. Upon his arrest, he appeared completely unremorseful. Questioned at the station, he divulged the information regarding the four murders he had committed, forthcoming with every detail, and in a twisted way, happy to share what he had done with the police. His arrest is a victory for Japanese lives saved after that point, and high praise to the police acting so quickly in such a dire situation, and a relief to the entire city that he was put behind bars. Once arrested, he was interrogated for his actions, his mental state, and then sentenced. So what happened after his arrest? Right after being caught, Sotomu's house was raided by the police, and this fact always staggers me, because it's just… unbelievable. Depending on where you do your research, the number varies between 5,763 to 6,000 videotapes containing various levels of voyeurism, child abuse and pornography, hardcore or graphically violent anime, specifically 5 minutes straight of one of the children he mutilated, and the guinea pig series. For my Patreons, I'm going to include the image of all his VHS tapes they managed to secure. It's just crazy. I struggle to imagine where the hell you put 6,000 videotapes and the money to purchase all of these. It just gets more and more crazy the more I think about it. Now, have any of you heard of the guinea pig series? It's old. I mean, really, really old. And strangely enough, I know about it personally. I actually remember stumbling across the series around 10 years ago now. By accident, really. I was into horror and occult films back then particularly those whose narratives were reflecting reality and the rituals carried out by monks in the past. 
So rituals where the monk is meditating and fighting the shaman and he's bleeding and being attacked and knocked around seem to just draw me in. There's actually a Netflix show that I watched recently that reminded me of all the old films I used to watch. It's called The Wailing. I highly recommend watching that one. It's a Korean thriller slash horror, but I digress. So yeah, I was into horror back then and I still am now in a big way. And I particularly loved researching Japanese horror films, investigating the strange ones, finding old films bringing something new and bizarre to my eyes. The guinea pig series though, well, this would have been one horror series I would happily forget. During my research on these kinds of films, I noticed the title of a film I'd never seen before, one that was really damn weird. The Guinea Pig series volume 1 out of a total of 6. I watched one minute of it and just stopped. It was, and still is, traumatizing to some extent. But it served as a litmus test to my psyche. That these films were films that I did not enjoy in any capacity. The films were focused on detailed gore, copious amounts of blood, and lots of awful other shit. To some people it would be ridiculous, and to others, it would be disturbing. In fact, these films were so unnerving to audiences around the world at the time that the producer of the film had to provide evidence that none of the actors had been killed or injured during the filming of each episode. And here is a fact that people don't generally know about the case involving Sutomu Miyazaki. Of the 5 to 6,000 videotapes he owned, Devil Woman Doctor from the Guinea Pig series was one of them, which as a result helped the series gather infamous notoriety, cementing its place in horror history. So from me to you listeners, I do not recommend you watch these films. I really, really don't. To a point where I'm not even going to link the wiki to it. They are gruesome and unsettling, with the first two episodes being graphic in nature and the latter episodes moving into bizarre comedy sketches, mixed in with gore and guts. It's perverted in a bad way that lingers in the mind. Now, I do mention in previous episodes about media not playing a major part in whether someone would become a murderer, and I stand by that still. But someone with a degree of mental illness, possibly schizophrenia in Sotomu's case, a high level of emotional abuse from his parents and peers, physical shortcomings, Sotomu felt that he had lower than average sized genitalia, and unrelenting rage at society from years of abuse and being surrounded by and having access to media that focused and supported his thoughts on murder, death and gore, could to some extent have inspired him. On the other hand, to me, even at a younger age, films like the guinea pig series had me seriously repulsed by what I was watching, and I wasn't able to watch the film in its entirety, shocked rather than entertained. So who knows the kind of impact these films had on Sutomu Miyazaki's mind. After Sutomu's arrest, he was interrogated by the police, but his behavior was extremely bizarre, not making any sense, and blaming the actions regarding the murders of cannibalism, vampirism, and necrophilia on someone or something completely unexpected. He disassociated himself completely from the murders he committed, having developed an alter ego, a sort of Jekyll and Mr. Hyde personality. Mr. Jekyll being Sutomu, and Hyde being the ego he called 
Ratman, a name you would have heard in the very first episode, and I've been asked why I constantly refer to Satomu's grandfather's death as playing an integral part in his spiral into madness, because I believe that trigger is what created the alter ego, Ratman. Amongst discussing his actions around that time in 1988, one of the promises that Satomu made to himself by his alter ego, Ratman, is that in doing what Ratman wanted, Satomu would have his grandfather back. The beginning of the end of his descent into madness. The thought of getting his grandfather back, the only person who ever showed any compassion, was always at the forefront of his mind. If this is true, it is terrifying how far Satomu would go for the love of his grandfather, which in itself is fundamentally a problem. At times in his questioning, Ratman was a separate entity, forcing him to act on command, whilst other times it would be inside him, controlling him, stating that the murders he committed were all in his dreams, not actions carried out by himself or on his own accord. And this Ratman ego would be a defining factor on how he was sentenced. But before we move into sentencing of this creature and tortured soul, the case had a major impact on the Japanese culture at the time, directly as a result of Sutomu's murders. The media pushed the image of Sutomu as a figure that represented the otaku culture in its entirety. He represented a warning regarding the otaku culture and what to fear from that lifestyle. Vilifying anime, manga, hobbyists and nerd culture, demonizing them with one brush. Consistently, the media deemed Tomu as the otaku murderer, or nerd killer, changing the social lens of what previously were people who were perhaps lonely, isolated, depressed, or just simply passionate about anime, manga, and the hobbies they're into, turning their image at the time into potential killers. So, not only are these people already ostracized by mainstream culture, their family and peers, they are now being hammered into the ground mercilessly by the media, creating a divide between people in that subculture that would take 24 years to repair. With a report estimating that 23% of the Japanese population in 2014 would consider themselves otaku, I used the 1988 Japanese population figures to take a rough guess at how many otaku would be present in Japan at the time. With the ratio of 23%, from the 2014 study, and the population being 122.6 million people in 1988, that's roughly 25 million Japanese people identifying themselves as otaku. That's roughly 25 million Japanese people identifying themselves as otaku. And at that time, they would be even more alone, even more isolated, and heavily criticized. An awful position to be in and a breeding ground for relationship problems and cultural delinquency. To put this into perspective, mates, just at the gravitas of how many people this is, Australia's entire population was 16.53 million people in 1988, and right now, we only have 24.7 million across all of Australia. I'm just blown away at the population gaps and that only 23% of Japan is still larger than my country's entire population. Sheesh. Now we're going to move into what happened during Sotomu's sentencing, and what the outcomes were in the course. During his court hearings, Sotomu was seen rambling to himself, 
constantly talking about his alter ego, Ratman, and to the jury, he stated that what he did were acts of benevolence and was doing them all a favor. When psychologists interviewed him during the time of the trials, they deemed him sane with the severe case of schizophrenia, whilst other psychologists that interviewed him said he had no apparent disorder. So I have no idea what was going on there, or whether the diagnosis was set up, or what I guess defines insanity in the eyes of the Japanese court. Dr. Susuma Oda stated that Sotomu killed for enjoyment, as thrill killings. Combined with his disassociative disorder, the murders he committed were considered characters in a comic book that was his life. Lastly, a psychotherapist Akira Ishii stated that he was a pedophile first and a killer second, and it was in this killing process that he was able to possess the children in their entirety and show his interest in them, which I can only assume is his twisted view of love and care. Again, I drag us back to the moment where Sutomu ate the ashes of his grandfather, his first realization and means to bring those that he loves close, and in this case, fantasies closer to him, turning the imaginary into reality and fiction into physical. The initial step into his pathway of depravity. The low and high courts charged him with abducting and killing four girls. During the trials, his father refused to support him in his defense and later committed suicide in 1994. Sotomu was sentenced to die by hanging on June 17, 2008, a mere 11 years ago at the age of 45, and the death sentence still applies in Japan to this day. Chief Justice Tokiyasu Fujita, January 2006, when discussing the reasoning behind killing Sotomu Miyazaki, he said this, The atrocious murder of four girls to satisfy his sexual desire leaves no room for leniency. When questioned specifically whether he would apologize to the family and to his peers for the awful actions he committed, he said he had done a good job. Zero remorse for sending the postcards, the ashes, and the phone calls he would make to their families after he murdered their children. The trial in all lasted seven years, with his mother, one of his older sisters bringing him comic books during that time. The last words he had before going to his death are strange and bizarre. Of all the things you could imagine to be said in this period, this is what Sotomu said. I'm going to get you, Batman, I swear, if it's the last thing I do. In those last words is a creature lost in nonsense, wrapped in cruelty, and consumed by insanity. But in those last words, the city of Itsukaichi and its nightmare would be at an end. His attitude brings to mind a level of absurd narcissism, where he thinks he is the hero of his own comic book. But in reality, the fact that it took 3,000 days of interviews from the police and 50,000 missing person posters to catch the creature that terrorized a town just proves one thing. That Sotomu Miyazaki was not the hero. He was the villain. And mates, this concludes the research piece on Sotomu Miyazaki, the child killer. This episode was heavily inspired by Matthew J. Bauer, one of my awesome Earl Grey enforcers, and a great buddy of mine. Thanks, Matt. 
and I'm going to take this opportunity to remember those taken from this world by the hands of this creature. Marie Kono, Masami Yoshizawa, Erika Namba, and Ayoko Nomoto. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope this episode provided some unique insights into the darker parts of our world. Next week, I'm going to go back into narrations, but I will be doing research still in this space, as a major special that will be coming up. I wanted to share this content, not as entertainment, but food for thought and discussion to better understand human nature. Enjoy your weekend, you brilliant listeners. If you want to support the show, visit my Patreon, www.patreon.com forward slash SFGT. Visit my website or SoundCloud for zero advertisement listening. And if you want to show me some love, an iTunes review goes a long way. Thank you again for listening. And as always, till next, we meet.